the bank financed the rehab, I went with a 203K loan that was $35,000 or less. So it's a streamlined 203K. So the process was a lot easier. If you go above 35,000 in rehab funds, the process becomes more difficult and more expensive. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Jim Murray, how you doing, Jim? Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Real yeah, excited my, to be here. My pleasure. And looking forward to our conversation. A little bit about Jim. He's the co-owner of Lion Property management group and co-host of the podcast, The Cashflow Kings, invests in multifamily real estate and manages real estate based in Providence, Rhode Island. So with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. So came out of college, started by house hacking. So first real estate investment was a house hack. From there, went into wholesaling, did a couple flips, bought my second house hack. The goal was always to become a corporate dropout. So have a degree in finance from Ohio State University. So shout out to my Buckeyes out there and landed a job at a large investment firm. Ended up catching a bad review, led me to during a year in. <laughs> so my manager told me, and I'll have to use without the profanity, but she told me, I don't understand how you're so effing confident because you're effing average. And I said, <laughs> great. Wow. Great. Dang, that is harsh coming out of college. Yeah, I sent a really cool email when I left, but it's one of the <laughs> world's largest privately held investment managers. So that went over well. Sent an email to 200 of my closest friends, called her out during part of the email. What'd you say? But, uh, I called her out that she called me average. Well, if you were being average, I think it's fine to call you average. Were you being average? Honestly, at my corporate nine to five, I definitely was. So what's wrong with her saying that you're average? It was the confidence thing. She said, I don't understand. Uh, yeah, that kind of is below the belt, right? But I think where she was frustrated was the fact that I had automated my job the first month that I was there and she was just trying <laughs> to apply pressure. So, okay. In what know, way did you automate it? Then I imagine others weren't. So I would produce a packet to be presented to the CFO on a monthly basis for the part of the company that I was within. And it was a bunch of Excel models. So I created it. So I would just dump the data in. And it would pump out the 50 slides for the deck that I needed <laughs> rather than all the manual work that the previous person who held the job had done. And I did that's that. That's so small. smart. Well, yeah. So you thought so. <laughs> that's what led me to be average the rest of the time because I had automated my job. And honestly, it was a established business within the franchise that I work for that they weren't making any changes. I consistently asked for more work. I didn't get it. So I started to focus on my real estate investing. And that's really when I started to build out the property management company and started to focus on the things that I really want to do to get me out of my nine to five. 
Okay. And what are some of the steps you took as a W-2 employee to get out of the W-2 employee world? So the biggest thing is that you have to be a great saver before you can be a great investor. So as you're taking those nice paychecks, hopefully from your day job, you're going to make sure that you're saving at least 10%. So I would say 10% for retirement, but then also your rainy day fund for when you leave. So I was able to save up a sizable nest egg for when I left in case the property management business. How much did you save? I saved $80,000 in cash. Wow. Okay. So I got a pretty good increase. So I left that job where she called me average. They moved me into another part of the company. They want to bring me in from my previous background. I spent six years there. They gave me a 40% increase. So I banked the entire thing. So that was the biggest component that was able to set me apart. The other big thing, trying to quit the nine to five job outside of saving, it's networking. So networking is huge in real estate. And having a tool like a Bigger Pockets or a local RIA is going to absolutely set you up for success. So that was the second component of how to get me out of the nine to five. The third component was building a viable day job. So at least I had some funds to continue kind of my day-to-day life as I built the company that I wanted. At what point did you have the confidence to leave your W-2? And when did you do that? That's a great question because I have some realtors that I know that are part-time now. And because of the height of the market, they're doing really well. They're getting a lot of deals. And they ask me that same question. It's when you feel the pain. So mine was about a year and a half after launching the property management company we had grown to a point that was sustainable. I left my W-2 job on a salary that was 30% of what I was previously making, but I always consistently lived well below my means. But the pain of not being able to chase my dream full-time just became too much. So that outgrew the side hustle in order to make it the full-time hustle. Property management. So from what I've heard is if someone has five or six companies, they're an investor, they have a couple other non-real estate ventures. They also have a property management company. Usually they say their least profitable is property management. What is your experience in the profitability of property management? I would say we are profitable within reason. So we're not overcharging our our clients, but the most profitable part of property management is going to be your maintenance. So you can have a top-notch maintenance team. That's where you're going to be able to drive profitability. I'm not saying that you overcharge your clients, but charging them for the value that you provide. On the other side, I noticed that a lot of property managers compete on price. And this is a conversation that I have all the time. There's another company in our local market that continues to reduce their prices because they're losing business to us, but our pricing has remained the same. So I talk with my business partner about this all the time. If you're in business competing on price, you're in the wrong business. Some of the entrepreneurship gurus talk about how you should really enter that high-end market. I am not the most expensive property manager in our area. We're about middle of the road, but we really drive that value home. A lot of folks look at management fees and they're like, oh, you only collect rents to earn that management fee. That's where I begin. There are a lot of intangibles in a management fee when you have a great property manager. That's going to be relationships with bankers to get you better financing, relationships with real estate attorneys. So when your tenants go to sue you over security deposits, if you're tough on security deposits, I'm getting that phone call first before the tenant even file so that at least the owner has a heads up or that attorney that I know is going to turn down that business. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of intangibles booked into that management fee that owners don't understand. And that's where owners will try and cut down some of these other guys to get a better price in the management fee rather than the property manager trying to show them the value that they can provide. Why did you choose to get into property management as a business? That's a great question. 
So I bought my first couple of properties and I realized what you actually make at the end of the day per door. So in our local market, a great investor is going to earn about $150 per door on a net basis annually. And that's really in the long run too. So if you buy a distressed property, you're going to spend a lot more money up front before you're going to earn that $150 a month. And I looked at it as, hey, as a property manager, I won't have the upside potential or the capital appreciation on one hand, but I can also earn that amount of dollars per door, but it gains me access to capital as well. So at the end of the day, I always have had an entrepreneurial tilt where I've wanted to buy companies. And I think that property management is a good starting place that has exposed us to other entrepreneurs and other really interesting opportunities. And what are some other opportunities that can just given a couple examples? This is a fun one that I think will connect with some of the listeners. We've had opportunities to purchase buildings to invest in medical marijuana grows. We've had opportunities to purchase restaurants. So other folks that are familiar with kind of our very process-oriented approach, they figured that it would bode well in the restaurant business. And then the other cool thing is as we've built this out, we've been able to go out and become paid speakers as well. Just with the entrepreneur to talk about the processes, things of that nature. And have you acted on any of those purchases or those opportunities to purchase? this point, we haven't. We've been focused on really building a great property management product. So here's the difference in terms of being a good entrepreneur versus a great one. So a good one is going to work in their business and get stuck. A great entrepreneur is going to find a way to level themselves out and be able to work more on the business and not as much in it. So we are very close. We're probably on about the 10-yard line, about to run the ball across the goal line in terms of my partner and I leveling ourselves out of the business so we can start focusing on some of those other opportunities. What would be the first one you'd focus on? Well, the first one is we're going to get back into wholesaling because wholesaling is going to naturally feed business back to the property management company. Ah, smart. Yep. So that's going to be the big one off the jump. We're also looking at opening up a hard money business. We have investors that are very well capitalized and we have connects with other local wholesalers or rehabbers that are always looking for good terms on capital, but allows us to work with the investors that we want to and still make a margin on that business as well. So off the jump, it's going to be really related to the core business. You build some that are closer to the core, and then you can kind of expand from there. I see the logic and I really enjoy the logic of next focusing on wholesale because that will naturally feed your property management business. So it's not like you're creating a new venture. Well, you're creating a close cousin to the venture that you're currently doing that and they'll play off of each other. Absolutely. And what helps is a lot of wholesalers start out and they're like, well, who do I market to? Or where do I find my cash buyers? Well, our buyers and our cash buyers are going to be built into the property management business. Mm -hmm. And if those guys don't want to buy it, then we can buy it as well. Do you personally invest in real estate? Yes. Currently, I own two four-unit properties. The opportunities in our local market has led to more flipping of multifamilies lately than anything, just because we're very late cycle in this real estate market currently. And who manages those properties? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my friend around. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, right. With the two properties, will you tell us about them? Yeah. The first property I bought, I was 23 years old. How old are you now? 31. Okay. So uh, it was scary as shit first night sleeping there. I was sleeping on an air mattress. I just closed on it. My girlfriend at the time, she wanted to get a puppy. So we got a puppy that night. I got stuck with, I love dogs. <laughs> but I'm sleeping there with new puppy on an air mattress in a half remodeled unit. And I thought to myself, what did I get into? From there was a climb. Honestly, every weekend for the first year, I was working on the property. 
my tenants gained an appreciation for that and I gained an appreciation for the process. But I was able to get it up and cash flowing. So it was a four unit building I bought for $140,000. At purchase, it generated $1,000 gross monthly. Once it was stabilized a year later, it's now been generating gross between 3600 to $3,800 on a monthly basis. Wow. Bravo. Thank you. The coolest thing is when I first bought it and I started to stabilize it, my mortgage was only $1,040 a month. And the first tenant I placed on the third floor was a three bedroom. They paid $900 monthly. And I'm like, holy cow, that's a major part of the mortgage. I had a great mentor that got me in. I didn't realize how good it could be. So very quickly, I was cash flow positive and headed in the right direction. Any thoughts on doing a refi on that one? Yeah, I'm in a really good position to do a refi right now. The property's worth about 300000 I still own 135 I had a great mentor in the beginning through a separate business that I worked a part of. And he told me, hey, you should never refi unless you have somewhere to put the money. I haven't found the right opportunity of where to put the money. But when I do, I would definitely refi that one in a second. It's in a favorable area of Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And I think that it would work out pretty well. That was one deal. What about the other one? So the second multifamily that I house hacked. So here's the cool part. House hacked the first one. And two years down the road, I was actually able to roll my owner-occupied mortgage into an investor non-owner-occupied mortgage, which allowed me to use an FHA loan on the second property to come in for very low money. The second property was a four unit in Lincoln, Rhode Island. And at that property, I actually leveraged a 203K loan. So the bank financed the rehab. I went with a 203K loan that was $35,000 or less. So it's a streamlined 203K. So the process was a lot easier. If you go above 35,000 in rehab funds, the process becomes more difficult and more expensive. That's probably a good golden nugget for listeners. I was able to live in that one again. When I picked it up, I had a bunch of one bedrooms in an A neighborhood that were rented at $500 a month. I came in and increased all the tenants to 800. All my friends thought I was crazy. I retained one tenant who's actually still there today, but I was actually able to rent the other ones for 825 a month after removing the other tenants. The inherited tenants were not happy going from 500 to 800, but I said, hey, listen, go take a look at the market. You're going to have to incur moving costs. You're also going to have to come up with first month's rent and security on another place. This is still a really good deal for you guys, and I'd love to keep you. What are some things that you do to the properties to increase the rent? It sounds like it was below market already, but any formulaic process that you typically do? Honestly, it's all going to start with painting and flooring. That's going to get you a majority of the way there in most of the neighborhoods in my market. The big thing with painting is painting the entire unit one color and using that paint color throughout everything you own. So it's a very streamlined turnover process. Same thing with using similar flooring in every single unit. If you can streamline the turnover process, it's going to mitigate costs. And then the guys that you bring in is going to help you out tremendously. So we use the same paint. We'd paint the unit. If we have hardwood floors, we refinish them because it's very inexpensive. If we don't have hardwood floors, we'd be pulling out the carpet and putting in laminate vinyl flooring. It just lasts four or five turnovers rather than two with typical wood laminate. So those are some of the things that we focus on at the first turnover. I know it's not like crazy. These guys are probably thinking like, oh, Jim puts in granite and stainless steel appliances, and it's not even at that level. It's pretty straightforward, just the paint and the flooring most of the time. What's a mistake that you've made on a deal, whether with management or your two, four units? I'm going to go back to a wholesale deal that I blew. So I went out to see a five unit in Lincoln, Rhode Island, five, six years ago. I met with a gentleman. He was incredibly distressed. I was ready to lock it up at a good price. We were pretty close. And as I went to walk away from that negotiation and go home and write up the PNS, 
He's like, oh, man, I feel like you're buying this really well. And my response was, yeah, well, you make all your money on the buy. And I, <laughs> as investors, we can say that to ourselves. We want to say that to the buyer that you're about to clear a really strong deal on a five unit that's off market. And I still kick myself today for saying that. It was just rookie mistake. And deal I will... didn't, Deal didn't happen? No. What so, did he say, if anything, when you said that? I followed up with him for six months. He blew me off for four months. But he told me that he was an Asian investor and he was able to find another partner to bring in capital to help get him out of the pinch that he was in. Hmm. Or at least that's the story that he told me. <laughs> I looked it up on public record and he had it in one legal entity and now it's in two separate legal entities. So it does look like he brought the partner in, like you said. And what's a deal, if any, that you've lost money on? Not opportunity cost in this example, but actually lost money. My first flip deal, I bought a four-bedroom, two-bath house for $22,000. I did not realize it was a brothel, and I did not realize that the previous owner was renting the garage to folks in the neighborhood to shoot up and do cocaine. It was wild. So the prostitutes would kick in the side door and sign their name in lipstick on the windows. <laughs> oh was, my goodness. There were almost like cops episodes where we would go and check on the property at night. We ended up installing Simply Safe. So that helped out tremendously. But I can remember one time we had the cops called, they brought the canine and he looked at us and he goes, if anybody comes running out, tackle them. We're going to be right behind them. <laughs> crazy. Did you tackle anyone? No, nobody came out, but I was scared shitless for 30 seconds. <laughs> so on that property, the first contractor that we were going to work with, so I had two other partners. So it was three partners in total, including myself. The money partner wanted us to work with his contractor. I'll use air quotes, even though nobody can see them about his contractor. Right. He wrote that guy a check for 30,000. We never saw the guy again. So 30,000 was our margin on that project <laughs> in $80,000 rehab. And it took us a year and a half to sell it because it was in a D neighborhood. So with carrying costs and everything factored in, we lost a couple thousand dollars. So it wasn't a huge loss, but I learned that you got to work with tried and true contractors, but also you got to factor in if you're going to buy in a D neighborhood, even if you make that single family really nice, it's still going to be difficult to sell on the backside. And even to end that crazy story of buying the brothel in the hood, we went to close, got the clear to close, and they did one last check and he showed up on the terrorist watch list. So it took us an extra week to close it in order to prove that he wasn't the terrorist on the list that they had pulled up, which was wild. Wow. Clearly, there are some obvious things that, hey, if you see this, you're not going to move forward on a deal. But what are the three or four bullet points of if you come across a deal like this in the future? Because I'm sure there's ways to make money on any deal. But if you come across certain things on a future deal, you'll approach it differently. What are those? Having more control of the process. So candidly, I got into that deal with no money down. I just thought it was cool. The hard money or private money guy that I worked with, he said, hey, listen, rather than wholesale it, why don't you work with me and you'll make money on the back end so it'll be more than your wholesale fee. I would say, even if you're going to do that, try to get a wholesale fee so it makes it worth your time of the deal. You don't always have to do that, but pay attention to that and then just have more control or more of a level setting with your partners of the contractors that you're going to use. Verify that they've worked with them before or verify the references of the folks that they would worked with. There are some other things in that deal yeah, that were please. just like crazy. But I would say I should have put more time into the due diligence up front of how long properties were taken to clear in that market and then also broken apart the neighborhoods. We were like in that in-between neighborhood where it could have taken a long time to sell or a shorter time to sell. So I should have budgeted more for that longer term to sell the property on the back end. Okay. 
And how do you know what time frame to budget on the back end for selling a property? You can reach out to local realtors in your market. So you can very easily go out to MLS or even out to Zillow to see who's clearing deals in that market. And then reach out to them to ask them, how long does it typically take you to clear either a rehab, so something that's in really good condition or something that's in less favorable condition, but lean on the experts in your market. Based on your experience, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Take action, simply. I can remember one of the very first Bigger Pockets podcasts I listened to. I can't remember who said it, but they said massive action equals massive results. And at the end of the day, you just have to take action. There are so many people that are stuck on the sidelines thinking about what if I do this or what if I do that? Just go out and do it. Because at the end of the day, you're always going to make more money. Hopefully you do make a return on everything that you buy, but just take the action and it's going to get you to where you want to go. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right, let's do it. First quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. Best ever book you've recently read? The Wealthy Gardener. And what did you learn from that that you've applied to your business? It was a synopsis of every great book that I've ever read, but it led me to realize that we need a higher level of accountability in our business. And how did you implement that? So my partner and I have a weekly mastermind meeting, and now we're more direct in our weekly mastermind meeting of here are the three things that we need to work on. Rather than saying, hey, broad strokes, they're very definitive, one, two, three for each partner, so that we can go and tackle that in the next week. Best ever deal you've done? It was the first deal that I ever did. What about a mistake you've made on a transaction that we have not talked about already? That's a tough one. I know this is lightning round. I'm struggling now. <laughs> so You can take a minute. That's all right. I think it's not getting tenant estoppels on a deal. And then showing up and the tenant telling me that the rent was half of what it actually was. So that's a big no-no. And that's something that I'll stand by on every income property investment that I ever make for the rest of my life. And will you elaborate in case someone's not familiar with what you're referring to with tenant estoppel? So a tenant estoppel is a really fancy name for a document that just confirms the amount of rent a tenant pays. So you'll get one tenant estoppel for every income producing unit in whatever you're buying. And the tenant, the owner, and the buyer all sign it so there's no questions asked in terms of the amount of rent for that unit. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? It's given my time. So I was able to speak at a, a local middle school about financial literacy. And that was one of the best things I've ever done. Just real feel good moment. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? Give me a follow on the Cashflow Kings on Instagram. So the handle is the Cashflow Kings. And we post daily and you'll get to see the ins and outs of everything that I do on a day to day basis. Jim, thank you for being on the show talking about your thought process for creating a management company, how you position it among other property management companies why you got into the business and the lessons learned on some deals that did not go well, as well as lessons learned on some deals that did go very well. So really appreciate your time. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount 
property investors. Join their end of the work week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. Best ever listeners, go to bec20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, bec20.com.